What's up, everybody? How's everybody doing? Welcome. Welcome to the Artists of Data Science Open Happy Hour. Super excited to have you guys here. We got the room filling up. Lots of people trickling in, man. Super excited to see everyone here. Hope you guys are all doing amazing. Uh, by the way, shout out to Rihanna for uh, supporting the farmers protest. I think that is awesome, bringing it to mainstream awareness. I know you guys have heard me talk about this once before. Um, if you haven't already heard about the farmers protest, you need to go and read up on it. So shout out to Rihanna for bringing it to the public awareness. Um, we pretty much got the the bootleg Indian version of Donald Trump running India right now and just causing a scene. Um, so I'm just leave it at that. All right, guys, super excited to have all of you here. Welcome to the happy hour. Uh, we got Susan Walsh. We got Evangelos. We got Tom, Jennifer, Jean Sebastian, Eric, Dave Langer. Man, this is awesome, man. Super happy to see you guys here. Um, anybody else? If you guys want to come on and turn your camera on, I'd really appreciate that. I've made the settings so that um, anybody who doesn't have the camera on is suppressed. That way it kind of just keeps it nice and clean for us. Uh, what's up, everybody? How you guys doing? I am so hungover. Already? Isn't it just nighttime? How can you be hungover? It's, yeah, I've been hungover since this morning. Um, I did a drunk LinkedIn Live last night as well. How did that go? It was quite fun. I, how did I miss that, man? Love what George, love. George what came love. on. George was on it. <laughs> oh really? Yeah. Oh man, I gotta, I gotta go back and watch that. Oh man, well, I, I hope you're feeling better now. It, yeah, yeah. You know, it's there was there was a lot of alcohol involved. It was uh, like a part an online Zoom party. Um, oh my just god! Got, and like the LinkedIn Live was like the after party. <laughs> Dude, that sounds like a lot of fun, man. I wish I was. No. I'm, like, I'm probably gonna get banned for like drunk linked living or linkedin living or something but that's, yeah that's that's not a thing that's not a thing <laughs> i just made it a thing <laughs> all right guys well I've like i've had pizza i've got cookies i'm like i'm all good now i would have about to have a ball man i wish i had like a, i should have got like a beer or something a glass of wine i guess it's happy hour should be should be having something um yes megan's got something what do you have there megan oh she she is inaudible i think your microphone might be uh, messed up yeah still can't hear you but that's okay um get that sorted out because if you have a question we'd love to be able to hear you uh so yeah welcome everybody hey if anybody has a question go for it um if you want to just take over the floor and uh, ask your question or just type in i have a question in the chat i'll be monitoring the chat and uh, putting people in the queue so if you have a question while somebody is talking, just type in, I have a question into the chat and then I'll be sure to, to add you to the queue. All right, Dave, how you doing, man? Good. Yeah. Are you guys excited for the dedicated conference? It's coming up in just a, just a few days. I need now. to prep. Yeah. I haven't, same here. I haven't put my stuff together yet. Yeah. I'm, uh, I'm going to be working on my present. Well, I've been ideating on the presentation and just like mulling it over in the back of my head for quite some time so i'll probably put uh, pen to paper this weekend and start are you doing like just a talk or are you doing slides and talk um it's gonna be slides and talk but the slides will be very minimal wordage just like a word or two just to illustrate the example but if you haven't registered already um register guys it'll be a good time and for those of you who are in the slack community i'm going to send a uh, a message about me doing a um 
practice session on Wednesday. So I hope to be able to practice with you guys uh, from the Slack community on Wednesday, just to make sure that my presentation is good. And thank you for everybody who took time to fill out the survey to help me make the presentation um, like as good as I could possibly make it. I really appreciate that. All right. So I don't see any questions in the chat. So uh, if anybody has one, now is the time. Yeah, I can go. Yeah, definitely. Go for it. So um, I've just been kind of exploring a little bit of like, I guess, feature engineering and kind of trying to dive a little deeper because I think that's, I mean, it really can help kind of improve uh, performance on a model and just how things come through. Um, I was wondering if anyone had any just like good starting, um, I guess, feature engineering, like getting into the depth of it. I think a good um, package in Python is called Feature Engine. That's that's a good uh, package to get started with. But I think feature engineering in general is very um, dependent on context and dependent on what type of data you have. So when I think of feature engineering, I think of ways to unlock all the complexity that is hidden in raw data, right? So like if we have an example, let's say, where we have a column and that column is something like a categorical column, which has three levels to it. You know, I think people typically might just want to do one hot encoding or label encoding or something like that. But I think a often overlooked method that can be just as valuable is doing some type of a summary statistic encoding based on those groupings, right? So for example, you can create new columns. You know, if you, if you imagine a pandas data frame and you group by that category and then come up with like summary statistics columns, such as group mean, group standard deviation, group min, group max, something like that. Um, and then merge that back in with the original data frame. You can build out some of that complexity that is in there. Uh, Tom, what, what do you think about feature engineering? So my simple example I love to give the people, Austin, is let's say we're working with a stupid, simple example. Okay. I think I even have a graph. I wonder if I, well, I'm not going to show my screen, but basically let's say uh, you've got a stupid, simple example, like why do, sorry, I don't mean to call it stupid. It's actually a great example, but your data is curved. It's parabolic, but your values are just X. Well, you're going to need an X squared to fit that, but there's no X squared among your features. So you add it, you engineer it. Well, as you get more variables and you get more possibilities, you can have quite a a large, rich number of polynomials and combinations of polynomials that would add to the fit. But there's sometimes where you've got to do something strange like X squared plus Y squared, just to create another dimension. For example, let's say you have a, you're doing some classification. You've got a group of dots in the middle and a ring outside. If you want to use logistic regression to separate those, you're going to have to add X squared plus Y squared. It's really just adding another dimension. And that way you can literally draw a circle for the separation boundary between those. So it's literally engineering new features, adding functions in there that wouldn't have been there before. Does that help, Austin? Yeah, definitely. Um, 
Yeah. Cause I, I, I guess you're right. Like it all really depends on the context of the data you're using. Um, so I, I just wasn't sure if anyone yet, like using some kind of general frameworks of like, think like you, like you said, you're adding another dimension. So if you, if you have an X squared type of thing, you're going to need a Y squared or something to kind of go along with it. So just kind well, of would say, differently. Yeah. Just so you know, I was, I was speaking loosely because a lot of examples that show that particular example they put it on edge just to show how it, it's essentially created a new dimension. But once you get a feel for how to engineer your own features, and, and I encourage doing that first or trying to do it at first, um, it's the same old game. Now you can go get an auto feature engineering package, but you still need to have a sense of how to reduce it down to just the additional function. So example, what well, was it X squared? Do I need X squared plus Y squared? And then if, if you have two variables, well, okay, maybe I should look at X squared and Y squared and X, Y, and well, maybe you didn't need X, Y. Well, how do you figure out? And it gets back down to feature reduction at that point, getting rid of the features that don't matter. Yeah, the classic example I like to use is like, let's say you have two features in your data set. One is height and one is weight. All right by themselves you know they're points of information but if you did something like bmi which is a combination of those two features you get a bit more information from that so i uh linked to a a uh, framework not framework but it's a python package i guess you can call it a framework called feature engine um and i think dave was going to link he did link to the book that i was about to link to as well the feature engineering i'd love to hear from um from from Monica and Makiko, how do you guys engineer features? What are some things that you think about? Yeah, to your point with the height and weight, I think of it more as like categories using domain knowledge um, in your data set. If you have a similar example I have is you, know, you have like uh, demographic data um, with or geographic data and you know that you know, if you have this zip code and your house is two stories, then you're middle class or something like that. That's very high level. There's lots of other things that are involved, of course, but um, I think of it more of a categorical type way. Mikiko, and then we'll hear from Dave. Yeah, so the, so the way I would approach it is like, um, kind of go from like min max effort, right? So, you know, you go after the low hanging fruit features, which are um, the ones that are existing. And like the way I the way I would kind of like approach it is like let's say you just don't know anything, right, about the data set, because let's be honest, you can get a data set. People can say, you know, this column means this and this column means that, and oh, this column should never be null. It should never have negatives. Um, you know, and we've all had experience where it's like you're a damn dirty liar, um, right? So low hanging fruit, sort of effort first. Um, so the first thing I would do is do some kind of like. Mm, I don't want to say a group chart, but like um, something like a correlation chart or like um, a, heat, a heat map of the different features that you have and how they relate to the labels. And that just kind of gives you sort of the lay of the land as well as doing the summary, like metrics, right? Um, and that's like the low hanging fruit effort. Yeah, pivot tables also, right? Um, it's just any way where you can kind of get like a holistic look as to your data set. Now in practice and some like production settings, this is like dang near impossible. Right. So if you're, for example, like Amazon and you have these really, really huge tables, does it sort of make sense to have like hundreds of features like side by side to look at? Visually, you can't really, it's not always very useful, right? 
So that's where some um, packages like HiPlot, it's from Facebook, it uh, looks at high dimensional data that can be very, very useful. Um, but that would be like the first step, right? Is low hanging fruit. Then the second step um, I would do is looking at certain things like feature importances um, or other sort of statistical measures of what you already have. Um, then the third step I would do is the domain um, expertise and research that Monica talked about. Like, so for example, um, I'm currently working on a real estate startup, right? Um, there are certain things where, there are certain features that we can like sort of generate automatically, right? Um, let's say mortgage data. Someone, the day that someone signed a mortgage and like the day they paid it off, right? If you have some of these auto ML packages, they can quickly just like subtract the different date fields or whatever. Um, but something that might be more meaningful, I mean, not saying we have this data, right? But like if you're a Walmart and let's say you create some, you have some like awareness that, um, you know, people who are, and this happened, right? Uh, people who are pregnant, um, if they are in like a certain stage, certain trimester, uh, they start to get very sensitive to smell, right? Which means that their purchasing behavior is going to move to things that are like less smelly. So, you know, less florals and all that like scent neutral. Um, that's something where, you know, you could, you could have actually picked that up from some of the consumer reports or some of the um, research publications. Um, now in that case, that happened accidentally, I think, that it came out publicly that they, you know, could do stuff like that. Um, but I would say like, go first for the like, understanding your data set and the features that you have and the relationships with them. Uh, then go to, you know, using like AutoML packages, not as like a standalone for feature engineering, but as an, an assistant tool and then bring in the sort of um, domain expertise. After that point, when you've covered all those three, it really is just a matter of like evaluating your features and like how they contribute to the model. That was wonderful. Yeah, I really appreciate the comments from everybody. Got a lot of notes and um, it's gonna help me kind of think about how to approach these types of problems and well, this type of problem, I guess. <laughs> Dave's I wanna some... add that just real quick, uh, Nikiko, really love that you added that about um, basically uh, looking at correlation between the labels and, and, the, and those features. That's the first clue that you need to do feature engineering. Really glad you added. So Dave, you got some great points in the chat about feature engineering. Uh, so let's, let's, um, let's hear you talk about that. And then after, after that, we'll go to uh, Mark's question and then we'll follow that up with Tor's question. Yeah, so you people can see what I wrote in the um, the chat window for some resources about things. Uh, more generally, what I would say is if you're new to machine learning, if you're new to feature engineering in general, a couple of tips. Um, one, domain expertise, especially in the business analytics space, there's no substitute for that. So if you don't know enough about the business and the business process, find somebody that does and they will help you. Next up, and this might be a bit heretical, coming from me, not a shocker, uh, avoid parametric methods. Focus on using non-parametric methods, like especially decision tree-based models, because they are much easier to grok what's going on with your features vis-a-vis -vis decision boundaries, why certain features are actually being picked and why aren't some are not. Um, I sound like a broken record, but there's nothing quite like the mighty random forest to start with, because Underneath are just card trees and card trees are very easy to understand how they use features that you engineer for decision boundaries. And then they're just aggregated up and made more powerful through a random forest. So those are, those would be my um, 
my biggest suggestions. And the reason for non-parametric and decision tree-based algorithms in particular is because it's very easy to use something like ggplot2, a data visualization framework, to actually say, hey, I'm going to create this feature, and then I can facet wrap it to get multiple dimensions at the same time and actually see, look, am I cleanly separating my prediction labels, for example? It becomes much easier to tie what you're doing in a visual way to how the algorithm might or might not use the feature that you engineer. And that's a very good way to get up to speed on feature engineering. Absolutely love it, man. Great conversations. So let's move on to Mark's question. So Mark, go ahead, ask your question, and then I'm going to open this one up directly to Joe and Matt. So it's kind of a kind of really focused question, but essentially at my job uh, is looking more and more like the engineers want to move towards uh, MongoDB as kind of our <clears throat> kind of data structure. Um, and they're still testing out and they're asking me a few questions, but specifically something I'm really interested in is ACID compliance with MongoDB uh, for, for kind of uh, kind of context, MongoDB is not a relational database. So things can get pretty wild um, for your data structures. And so one of the engineers asked me, I didn't have the questions, I, uh, the answers I thought would come here is, you know, earlier it was known for having really poor asset compliance. Now it's, it says a little bit better, but I'm curious if others have any ideas on that. And um, what are kind of ways to mitigate kind of data becoming crazy in MongoDB? Well, um, Mongo's a good database. Um, I, I would suppose what's the rationale for, for choosing that over something like Postgres, which we, we talked about? Yeah, we, we, we did talk about it earlier now. I need, need to go a little bit, little bit deeper now that we've, we've kind of made, they've kind of made a decision. Mm -hmm. um, I actually don't know why they don't want to go towards Postgres. I think the reasoning is probably because we're already in a NoSQL kind of setup. Um, mm -hmm. And then for context, uh, we currently use Bigtable right now, which is uh, yeah. which is Google, Google setup. I mean, I would say there's from from their standpoint probably nothing wrong with using Mongo, especially if you're already using Bigtable for a, a database. So I guess one of my questions would be if you could just. Uh, if you could just stick with Bigtable and where does Mongo fit into that picture? But I assume, they, assuming they've already thought through all these considerations, um, the, Bigtable's uh, for sure going away. <laughs> going away. <laughs> that right. uh, being replaced with Mongo. That's an interesting choice. Yeah, or or Postgres, but they're testing out Mongo right now and they really like it. So I'm probably gonna have to learn it. There's a lot to like about Mongo. I think the, the temptation is, I mean, again, for full disclosure, we actually partner with Mongo. So, um, and I think it's it's appropriate. It's an appropriate tool for certain use cases. Um, uh, they'll definitely sell you on the idea that it can be used for everything. Uh, my experience is sometimes relational databases um, are probably more appropriate. It depends on the scale of data you're talking about. It depends on um, the type of latency and lookups that you want to do um, and, and a whole host of other things. Asset compliance also being one of them, right? So um, Postgres is tried and true with um, structural integrity and asset compliance and everything else. So I would say Mongo, it's, it's like a bear trap. It's really easy to get into. Um, it might be harder to get out of. And so and this comes from lots of years of production level of experience with Mongo and Postgres. So I, I know of which I speak. Um, and then from an analytics perspective, any downstream stuff, you're going to have to take that in consideration too. The fact that uh, Mongo is schemaless also means that any downstream effects on analytics, you're going to have to think about that. Because uh, you can basically throw anything to a Mongo collection 
which also means you could potentially get anything out of a Mongo collection that isn't correctly defined. So that is a very big consideration. Yeah, and then the the push. So I I brought I definitely brought that up with them, and the, the pushback and it kind of made sense to me is that we use proto buffers, which is another Google specific thing. And for context, that it, it's a very it's a document based, so you have to just strictly state kind of what's the structure of your data that you're throwing in there. Um, would that essentially limit that that kind of evil craziness with Mongo, or is there's still kind of a a trouble with that? Mm, I, I haven't really tried using protobufs with uh, Mongo, so it's hard for me to say if, there, if there's some compatibility with the two. Um, but if, if there is, then Mongo, still inherently with Mongo, it's you can, the, the good and bad of it is you can put anything in there, right? So yeah. that's, that's always where I see people going wrong with Mongo is they, they, they're like, oh, we can just put everything in here. And it's like, yeah, that's exactly why it might be a problem for you too. Because... Um, the temptation, and, I, and trust me, I've rescued several companies from this too, where it's you know, migrating off of Mongo to Postgres for precisely the reason that data started not making sense after a while. Um, like you're trying to do aggregations and it's just somehow the way they had it structured did not line up at all. So I would just say like, make sure that whoever's implementing has, has they're communicating with you in terms of if they uh, add new data in that maybe is not expected, so. Yeah, and on the asset issue, I would say that someone on your team needs to become a Mongo expert. I mean, there have been many startups destroyed by Mongo, and it was because of misconfigurations and bad code, basically. Like, you can essentially make Mongo asset compliant, but you have to make sure that all the configs are set correctly and that the commits are handled correctly by your application. And so someone on your team, like, really needs to do that research, understand the gotchas, understand how code works. And then, you know, you need code reviews to make sure that those commits are happening correctly as new code comes in to make everything safe. The, the trick with Mongo is that like a lot of things that uh, in terms of data coherence that a traditional relational database would do for you, you now have to do as the software developer. And so you've got to have like gatekeeping on certain types of commits that could screw up the data structure. Super, super helpful. Sorry, also like making sure that uh, in different Mongo collections and documents that like you can refer IDs. So for you as a data scientist or data analyst, like. Uh, the last thing you want is to have all these disparate Mongo collections that you can't reconcile back to each other, right? That's a huge, huge one. I would be making sure that if they're going to be structuring their data to Matt's point, that this is being really well thought through beforehand. Because uh, otherwise, what you're going to find is if there's no way to bridge the data, then there's, there's no way. You're kind of SOL at that point. So no. that said, it's a great database. You should check it out. <laughs> <laughs> super, super helpful. There's some really great stuff I can, I can bring back to them as they're trying to make all these kind of considerations and the cool. final decision on the fate of how I deal with their data. I mean, the, the, the saving grace is I figure if they're um, uh, experienced or, um, or hardcore enough to use protobufs, then um, they should be able to figure this out because that's an order of magnitude more complex than Mongo. So <laughs> let me know how it goes. Well, that was definitely an enlightening conversation. I hope you guys took a lot away from that. I know I did. So I got a question here. So when people talk about saving their models to a Postgres database, like how does that work? What does that mean? Can you demystify that for us? Either Joe, Matt. Uh, by models, like a, like a machine learning model or like a data yeah. model? 
Yeah, like a machine um, learning model. I normally, oh, so maybe there's some miscommunication. I wouldn't recommend storing it in the model or in the database. I would maybe the results of a model. Like if you had um, like an output, you just need to do fast lookup on a, on a output of a model, then that, that would probably work really well. But yeah, if it's like saving like the the actual like um, you know binaries file or something, or yeah, the protobuf, I wouldn't recommend doing it that way. But yeah. Save it in an object store. Maybe have a pointer in your database to that to that object. Um, okay. But yeah, hopefully it alleviates confusion. So yeah. Models are it's a kind of a ubiquitous term these days. It means a lot of things. Yeah, I was reading some articles and people were talking about how they're saving their uh, model binaries to Postgres databases, and I was like, I don't understand how this works. So yeah, that seems like lunacy, but <laughs> whatever you're into. Yeah, <laughs> definitely not doing that myself. Cool, man. Well, Mark, was that was that helpful for you? 1,000%. I awesome, really man. appreciate the insights from here. Right cool. on. So let's go now to Tor Rorvik. Is Tor still here? Yes, you are. I'm still here. <laughs> Can you hear me? Yeah. Yeah, loud and yeah, clear. Perfect. Um, I, first of all, I'd like to thank you for allowing me to join the group. And I have to be very honest with you guys. I have absolutely no idea about 90% of the time that you talk, uh, especially when you're talking about specific software solutions and I don't know, whatever it is. Um, but I do get a lot of the principles uh, that are being mentioned. Right now, um, myself, I'm developing an online platform uh, which is for the audit community in the oil and gas industry. And as part of that, there is a lot of collection of data scheduled planned. The tool is just starting, but in the long term, there will be a lot of data collected. Now, one of the biggest challenges I have, I, I got 37 people that are just testing and using it now. And we are running just by going through one of the tools and one of the reports. Uh, I have probably about 30 to 40 reports saved for each of the stages and the history, et cetera. And the challenge I am starting to realize is that how am I going to manage all this data and ML and AI and all of these fancy things? I see that that is something that I'm going to need. And my question is really, what do I need to consider while I'm developing this? Because the ML is not going to be implemented yet, but what do I need to consider now with regards to how I structure, how I set it up, and also with the tables and databases, uh, are there things that I need to consider now so that I don't face huge challenges in the future when I'm planning on implementing machine learning? That's the question I have. It's a good question. I'd love to know the answer to this one as well. Uh, Matt, I see you typed something out there. So if you want to, uh, so let's hear from, from Matt and then the classification guru, if you'd like to, to jump in as well. I'll just ask up front, like what kind of data are you talking about? I think one of the biggest things we see is that people don't structure data appropriately for analytics, um, especially if they come from a web application background. So I worked at a company in my early days where we were doing basically with a company focused on data and analytics, but we were using a row-based um, Postgres database, which is generally an inappropriate choice for data that's going to scale. That's one of the most common mistakes because web developers tend to know about row-based databases like Postgres. And so that's their go-to. But you really, yeah, it pays to do figure out what your data scale is going to be in a couple of years and then choose a database that's going to be able to scale to that level easily. Unfortunately, yeah. there are a lot of nice solutions out there 
that are just turnkey. You still have to do your homework and develop the expertise, but you, you can talk to the community and kind of find out what's out there and then choose the appropriate solution early on. Just to give you a quick answer to that, basically there's two yeah. types of data we're talking about. One is financial transactional data, which going to be a separate module that's going to be analyzing uh, Benford theories and all of these things and structured. And this is based on VBS structure, SAP, Oracle, different systems, which is going to feed in, which need to be standardized. And this is something developing. The other side of the story, of course, is the soft. When you're doing audits in the industry, you're collecting a lot of words, basically, uh, which is linked to the date, to the financial data. And this is where I'm starting to see a huge shadow because what I'm trying to achieve is that with machine learning, when people are actually doing and performing and collecting, you will actually be able to match the soft data, like the text data, versus the financial data. So if I'm analyzing the supplier, well, the data that you will be analyzing, the transactional data will then be linked. Now, it is impossible for me as a person or individuals to actually manage that amount of data. On one audit, for example, that I performed, um, we had about 3 million lines of transactions, um, which had to be split up because Excel had its limitations. But that's just the transaction lines. And then you have on the other side, which is the software, you do the analysis, you need to review contracts. Ultimately, I want to have a system also where they goes through the contract, finds the key parameters. And I know there are software out there that exists today that does that. But then that's going to be linked up to the financial transaction analysis. Now we're talking long term, but ultimately this is. And my concern now is that by building the data the databases, I just want to make sure that I'm not going to have to kind of restart everything in the future when you start implementing does that make sense or? Yeah, yeah, it does. And I think in this case, um, the data you're talking about may not actually be that large. How much per month, how much data would you estimate they're accumulating? Typically, you start to see really big data. If you're getting into event-based data, like every click on a website, every event that happens on a website, then your data just mm. blows up. Um, I, to be quite honest, you could probably park this data um, inside of a cloud data warehouse, one of these options where you don't have to pay to have it turned on all the time, like a Snowflake or a BigQuery, or even in like a cloud storage object-based store solution. And then to your point, I think the, the key consideration afterward is just making sure that you have some kind of nice keys that will match the data up. And then you can go back and begin to dig into it later when you have that capability. So mm -hmm. are you restricted? to on-prem for some reason, or can you go to cloud solutions? Cloud solutions, but also uh, the restriction may be by some of the companies and clients, but you still need to have some sort of a link into the system itself or the cloud-based solution. Um, that is the plan in the long term, and it's built as a standalone program as well. So. But uh, the data-wise, I'm sure we're not talking the, the click approach amount of data, uh, but we're certainly going to be collecting a lot of data and doing a lot of financial analysis and comparison between region, countries, both horizontal uh, evaluations and vertical. Uh, it goes in all directions. So my, like I said, right now I'm still able to manage in Excel in my pivot tables. Um, which I kind of bring, I brought that to the 
limit uh, a long time ago. Um, but I'm not ready to kind of go further. That's why I'm developing the tool, and and I believe the market is there to to receive it. Basically, that totally makes sense. Yeah, I would say. In some respects, the the data market has kind of moved on from data lakes. Data lakes still serve a lot of purposes, but for structured data, we tend to put that into larger databases now. But mm. uh, raw text data is actually a great use case for a data lake. And so I think putting it into an object store like Amazon S3 would be great. You just need to think about how it's organized so that when you come back to it in a year or two, you can actually find things. That's the biggest problem with data lakes. They easily turn into data swamps because you still need a schema in the sense of like hierarchical organization that will allow you to find something in the future. Otherwise, you're just going to have a huge mess on your hands. You won't be able to find anything. And that's the thing. But just one more follow-up on that because when you mentioned about the large data, et cetera, is it possible for ML solutions to actually find equalities between data sets in different countries, for example? I mean, if you have SAP as one system, then that Oracle's now accounting. Is it possible to develop something that can actually analyze and find uh, things that are connected or similar uh, and then bring that forward to kind of my attention so I can evaluate it and say yes and no type of thing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, that might actually be a good use case for something like Spark to basically scan a lot of this data and figure out kind of what your features are, what your keys are that you're looking up on, even to the point where you could do some um, NLP type solutions. There are a lot of nice like packages in Spark for NLP. Uh, just wind up a little bit, the NIP you said? NLP, natural language processing. Ah, there we go. I'm with you. <laughs> text, featureizing the text in various ways. Okay. Okay. Thanks. Appreciate it. Thank you. Awesome. So hopefully that was helpful, Tor. Very helpful. Very good. Awesome. awesome. So next question is, we're going to go to John. John has a question about Transformers. So I wonder who wants to take that one on. Uh, so John, oh. go for it. Um, hi, thank you. So um, just to give a bit of context, I'm doing a project at the minute where I'm looking at Reddit data. And what I'm doing is I'm pulling Reddit data and using HDB scan to cluster that data. And after that, I'm using a transformer. Well, I think it's a neural network, actually. So it's the BART, um, the, BART the Facebook BART CNN. Um, I'm using that to summarize those clusters. So the problem I'm running into here is obviously the, the, the clusters of posts are, are massive now, right? So like the, the BART CNN can analyze up to 1,024 characters, I believe. So what I'm finding is when I look at those clusters and I look at the summaries, they're kind of just biased to the top of the, of the cluster. Um, so I was just wondering, does anybody know of any kind of natural language understanding models or tools or transformers that can deal with large bodies of text. Tom, you're the transformers guy. I'm, I'm bouncing this to you. And then after that, we'll see Makiko has. So, so I'm the, I'm a transformers passionate student who's super lucky to be friends with Dennis Rockman, the real guru of transformers. And first question, John, have you bought his book? Because it is released now. I haven't bought a book, no. Okay, I, I would highly recommend that you buy that book. Uh, Transformers are on the leaderboards now. They've passed up RNNs, LSTMs. 
they definitely train faster with more parameters. They, they can beat CNNs, I think, all the time. I don't know for sure on that one. But the best thing about them, John, is you, they are really good at transfer learning. So you, take, you can literally go get GPT-2 and you can transfer learn it. Now, then's the question, which transformer do you want to apply transfer, transfer learning to? Or do you want to create your own transformer and train it, which is possible? Um, would you mind repeating just in a summary fashion again? I've missed a little bit on your description of the task you're trying to achieve. Okay, so what I'm trying to achieve, or what, what I've actually done is I've got posts from Reddit. So I've got lots of Reddit data, right? And I'm using it's a... textual though, right? You're, you're doing text. It's text, text. data. So yes, yeah, sorry. Yeah, this is text data. So Reddit, it's just like <clears throat> posts. So I've got data consisting of a, a post. It tells you the title in the body of the post. I've cleaned this with uh, natural language processing. So I'm looking at the bodies of the posts now. And what I've done is I've applied HDB scan to cluster those posts into similar categories and grouped those posts by category. And I'm applying a trans not a transformer, I'm applying a CNN. So it's the BART, the Facebook um, CNN. So I'm applying that on at the cluster level to summarize that text so I can get an intuition of what's kind of happening under each cluster, right? So I did use the, I think it was the T5 transformer before. So it's all, this is pre-trained. These models are all pre-trained. I used the T5 transformer before, but it had, it maxed out at like 512 characters the pre-trained version. So there's an option to kind of truncate. There's an option to, to, to like truncate what's being read in. But when you say the 512, uh, uh, first of all, let me back up with what you're saying just a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, are you trying to do a cluster analysis of some kind on the comments? Are you do, trying to do a classification? So I've already done that. So I've already done the classification. I've, I've built my clusters um, and I'm rolling the bodies. So you have a text body and a text title, right? So if you, to, just to step back, if you post something on Reddit, the, the post has a title and then there's a body of text following that post. I'm interested in body of text following that post and I'm interested in kind of grouping those together in clusters for different posts. So there could be like a thousand, 4,000, 5,000 different posts. The assumption is there are going to be some posts on this subject that are similar. So I'm using the HDB scan to group those together. I've got my clusters. I then roll those up into, I roll the, 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 the text associated with each cluster into one thing and then apply the transformer on that. But as you can imagine, that kind of cluster level um, text is, is, is quite big now. So most of the, the pre-trained transformers kind of max out at like 512 characters. Um, and this is for text summarization. I think, and, and forgive me if I'm wrong here. Mm -hmm. and, I, and, and by the way, if, if you have made a conceptual error with the 512, I want you to know I completely sympathize. So okay, my, my, my concern is when you say the 512, you mean uh, the number of characters coming in? Yeah, yeah. So um, okay. that that let me just help you there. Mm -hmm. A word embedding is a fancy way to take your vocabulary and or 
what you the sentences you have coming in yeah. and and map it to a hyperspace. So the yeah. 512 is the number of dimensions they've used yeah. for the word embedding. You've got that. Yeah, that's right. That's that's exactly okay. Yeah. Okay. So you what did you use to embed your the the input wording? I used a, another transformer to embed to to basically take that and vectorize it. So it could, yeah. So I, I, there's, there's a process I use to take those, okay. that body of text and vectorize it. Right. And, and by the way, I think you were just, uh, terminology is still dirty in data science. So yeah. it, it was just a terminology struggle there um, for probably okay. both of us. So um, I, I think I, my, my only concerns from listening to you, and it may just be that I don't understand you is, that pre-classification you're doing, it sounds like, well, why wouldn't you just have the transformer do that? It seems like you're doing something you want the transformer to do. Are you trying okay. to train it? Are you trying to train it further? Is that, are you trying to use those classifications to do some additional transfer learning? No, I, I'm not. I'm not. So the classifications are basically to pick up topics, right? So, right, right. So, um, so you want the transformer to recognize those topics though, right? So I've, I've kind of already got that part down. So I've, I've, I've already got that part down where, and I think it is, I think it is a transformer I'm using. I, I should pull up my code just to, to see. So where, what, where I'm getting lost yeah. in it, and Harpreet, you be the gatekeeper, whether John and I should take this offline. Thank you. Um, it's just that it sounds, I, I may be missing something, but it sounds like you want the transformer to do this categorization or classification, but yet you have a thing that's doing it ahead of time. So that's where I'm getting, what do you want the, what do you want the transformer to do versus what you've already done ahead of time? So I'm writing, am I right in saying that transformers can be used for different tasks, right? So yeah. you can use transformers if you want to, to cluster or, or categorize, and you can use transformers to translate, or you can use transformers to summarize. So I've got everything up to the clusters. It's now just because the clusters are so massive. And as you said, like when you cut, when you like vectorize those, the body of text using, uh, I'm using a convolutional neural network right now to summarize that text, but because it's so big, um, I'm past, I'm past the kind of dimension limits for that network. And there isn't anything bigger. So I, when I did, when I looked, well, there isn't anything bigger I can find because when I did my um, research, quite a few people had run into the same problem. So it was like 1,200 and 1,024 1, characters, I think, was the, I keep saying characters, but you know what I mean? It was dimensionality. Embeddings, embeddings 1,024 was the max. So that's basically your dimensions. Yes. That's the dimensions of your embedding. So still what I'm confused on, John, uh, I think if we get around this, we can get to your answer fairly mm -hmm. easily. It sounds like you've used the CNN to 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 create these four categories. I'll say the uh, what did you call them? I'm sorry. No, uh, so I, I didn't. I didn't use the CNN to cluster. I used um, a pre-trained Bart Facebook CNN. Okay. Yeah. To and it was pre-trained to summarize the text after I've already formed the clusters, the clusters are, are formed already. No problem. So basically the Facebook bots already done this clustering. 
now what do you want the transformer to do? Because really, by the way, yeah, transformers are the bomb. That's great. It'd be fun to know how to use it. But it sounds like you've already got this Facebook bot to do the clustering. Did you want to use that data to train a transformer to go further? No, so I don't, I, I think I've miscommunicated that. It's the, the, the Facebook bot is the model, the pre-trained model I'm using to do the summarization. So when I, when I say summary of a text, it's taking a large body of text and condensing it down into a smaller paragraph um, with some kind of, to, so you can get the, the overall kind of, you can get a summary of that text. So it's an, ah, it's, yeah. Okay. So yeah, I've, I've, I've kind of explained it badly. The cluster's already there. I have no problem generating the clusters. It's okay. then building the summary on those clusters. I'm running into issues oh. because there aren't any, there aren't, from what I can see, there aren't really any um, available models that like can do summaries on large bodies of text yet. I think I you, now, well, oh, sorry. I think now that I've heard you, um, and we may need to take this one offline, but I do think a transformer could summarize your clusters and it could be that an existing transformer model without any additional transform, transfer learning could do it. Okay. Based on my, I'm, I'm still a newbie to transformers, but based on what I've learned and what you've described, that's where they kick ass to summarize something like that. And uh, I couldn't tell you off the top of my head but I'm happy after the show, you and I can connect and I can uh, do a quick search on Dennis's book since you don't have it yet. And I can tell you which model's good at doing that. And I think yeah. it's one of the ones that you can get a hold of. The only one that's really hard to, to make use of off the cloud is GPT-3. The others are pretty darn near freely shared. So there's, there's hope for you. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, thank Here's you. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Let's hear from Curtis because I know he's got some insight into some NLP stuff. I know he's really into this. By the way, uh, Curtis, this is like the Curtis whose episode was released today on the podcast. It was today? Yeah. <laughs> oh. I didn't know. Hi, Curtis. Hello. Oh, hello, Tom. Um, how you doing, John? You are right? Yeah, yeah, I'm good, Curtis. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Um, what what came to mind straight away? I don't know if you've heard of it or if you've tried it. Is um, locative sensitive hashing? No, I haven't heard of it. Okay, so it's just like doing a search in a subspace, but is yeah, <laughs> it's just because I, what I'm thinking is it with a transformer model, the attention part of it would now process against every single word. If I'm conceptually saying it right, it would process against every single word and it just might be running into a memory overload but what um the locality sensitive hashing will do it will divide the embeddings into subspaces and then do searches of the subspaces to find the most relative words in that okay. subspace yeah so um subspaces that are further away wouldn't necessarily need to be processed because it's not relevant but I, I don't know if I'm explaining it very well. In fact, I, I know I'm not. <laughs> but, I, think, uh, I, think, I think I get what you're saying. And it, it does make sense because I, I, I tried it with, um, so before I used the Facebook bar CNN, I used what a pre-trained, I think it's called the T5. It's Google's um, transformer. 
And what I found was because the the embeddings, the the kind of max embeddings was like 512, it just focused on literally the top of the body of text. So when I checked the summary against the entire body of text, I could see that it just picked out a few kind of sentences from the top and obviously didn't it didn't summarize as I was expecting. So I, I get what you're saying. I think that type of thing does make sense. So what what did you say it was locative sensitive hashing hashing okay I'm gonna check it out and um, Tom Thomas I'm gonna reach out to you as well um, okay. to see if there's there's any kind of models that you know of that can yeah. deal with large bodies of text quite frankly just from your description it sounds like the way you are tokenizing before you uh, embed is breaking okay it's it's just not reading all the text. I would I would hunt for somewhere in your code to see where that might be going wrong. Do you yeah. kind of agree, Curtis? So I missed the last bit. I was reading a comment. <laughs> oh, sure, sure. I was just saying from his description, if it's not embedding all that text, it sounds like there's just some kind of error in his uh, tokenization scheme that's not getting all the text and, and uh, embedding it all. From the way he's talking, that, that could if, also possibly be one. That that could. Yeah, be I I know that I know I had I definitely had that issue when I was using the T5 for sure. Um, I d I definitely had that issue, and that's why I kind of decided not to go with that transformer and I, I moved on to um the Bart. But like, yeah, the T5 was definitely a lot faster. It, it wasn't working as as it should have done, but it was definitely a hundred percent faster than the Bart. So that's um that's positive. That's some good discussions for all the NLP fans um, listening. That was pretty damn insightful. Thank you guys so much for going deep on that. John, by the way, if you want to do this project, not on Reddit posts, but on the text transcripts of the Artist of Data Science podcast, let me know. I can make that happen for you. Awesome. I think, yeah. I think that might be a much more interesting project than than Reddit. I'm just I'm just saying, man. Yeah, no, de definitely. I'll, I'm going to reach out. Yeah. Yeah, to me, man. next up we got uh, Tomas. I hope I'm saying your name right. There's a lot of uh, accents on the A and the S. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, Tomas. Yeah. How's it going, man? Go for Works. it. Yeah, all right. Uh, so my question is about how do you actually like uh, serve your models? Like what's the best practice, right? So for models that run on cloud, it's probably easy. The API works well. But my question is mostly for uh, for uh, the, run, the models that run on the edge devices, right? The edge deployment. Basically, I have a model that analyzes 20 pictures uh, each minute, so it wouldn't make sense to send everything to the cloud and analyze it there. So, like, what's the main practice? Do you actually have a like local API, either with a Flask or or Fast API, or do you run dirty code in in like you know just plain Python or you know? Basically, I'm asking because I recently switched fields, so the imposter syndrome is real. So I'm not sure like what's the best practice to to serve the models. Trust me, man, imposter syndrome is real every single goddamn day for me. Um, I, I mean, I'd love to hear from from I think maybe Joe or Matt probably has a lot of experience with this because I've got zero experience deploying to edge devices. I sadly don't really have anything with edge devices either. So. Um, I don't know if you've, you've uh, dorked out in Edge ML. Uh, not, not really. I've got to say, 
Yeah. Yeah. Maybe that should be a weekend project one of these days, <laughs> but you know, with a couple of phones or something, but I'd love to hear from someone who's done it with a lot of devices. Yeah. We actually, we have a client who's uh, working with edge devices, but we're just getting started with them. Maybe we can collect some insights from them and bring someone on the show or something like this. That would be freaking awesome, man. I'd love to learn more about that. Uh, anybody here have any experience deploying to edge devices? No. Um, if anybody has links or resources that could help to match out, Please uh, go ahead and share those right there into the chat. Hey, Matt, I remember our friend, he was using uh, the, uh, was it the Coral Edge uh, device? That looks pretty cool. Um, yeah, I guess that's that's out, but... yeah, yeah. Let's, yeah, we'll try to recruit some more people. Here, right? Yeah, an onboard TPU on it too, which is kind of cool. So, yeah, definitely, man. That'd be awesome. Uh, Greg, you have a uh, suggestion here that might help? Yeah, I was talking uh, when when Tomas was talking. I was thinking about the same thing that federated learning is trying to do, right? Which is um, having a, a localized uh, model on the cloud, and you deploy uh, sub models to the edge devices that learns from the device and sends those parameters to the centralized um, model in the cloud. And um, so it gets the average output from all of these devices to this centralized uh, cloud model. So I was thinking whether federated learning, if you look into that, Thomas, maybe you might find how they're deploying uh, these models to the devices to help learn uh, from this data on the edge without compromising uh, personnel data. So, um, there are a couple of uh, papers I can share with you on this one. I've got a paper here by um, this by Yan Zhang and Matthew Salveras from Microsoft called Deploying Machine Learning Models on the Edge. It's from October 2019. I can post that right here into the channel. Hopefully that's helpful if it's something you haven't already come across. Um, hopefully I can help you with um, with the journey. And there's another one here by heartbeat.fritz.ai about machine learning models on edge and mobile. Hopefully that's helpful. Thank you. Right on, man. Um, if anybody else has questions, now is the time, my friends. Actually, one quick comment. Um, in terms of like learning sort of best practices in the whole imposter syndrome, um, I'd recommend looking at Full Stack Deep Learning. Um, they have like an online course website that goes over just sort of like the end-to-end -end training and um, training deployment evaluation and all that. Um, and then I'd also consider too, like in terms of serving predictions or serving models, like whether you actually need to, like, do you basically need to, do you need to train the model on the device or do you just need to like actually serve the predictions? Um, cause if you need to train them on the, on the device, like Apple does have some ML libraries, um, that you would use with Swift and you can also look at TensorFlow Lite, I think. Um, so those are like two potential libraries. But I would definitely recommend um, looking at full stack deep learning. Um, uh, uh, Joe Rice and, and Matt, I think you guys, uh, it was the Utah meetup where Josh Tobin was talking. It wasn't yeah, specific. Yeah, Utah did, did an engineering meetup a few weeks ago. Josh gave a yeah. great talk. Yeah. Yeah. So I would um, you know, also look up that talk too, not necessarily because it deals with edge computing, but it's still talking about best practices. Um, because I think like it, it becomes easier to sort of evaluate like what solutions you really need when you first off understand kind of like what 
end-to-end would look like for sort of your products or models that you're working for. Um, and then also like being able to ask yourself, like, do you like certain things, for example, like what's the latency and what's sort of the, the privacy around um, the data that's being handled in the mobile app? Because for example, if it is really secure data, that's like PII or whatever, um, definitely, you know, like to Greg's suggestion, like look up federated learning, because that's sort of like how that area kind of developed in response to that question of like, well, what do we do with like personal information that we don't want to be sending back and forth? Um, but also really consider whether you need to even like leverage TensorFlow Lite or any of the other libraries. It could just be that, you know, you just like have like the prediction saved and then it's just like pulled through like a query or request like to a model that's like served on cloud. So I would, I would, that would be my recommendation. I would say also, I posted a link to Josh's talk. I, I find it was interesting for a, a few reasons. It was a really good look at um, uh, production ML, but I think Josh also unveiled something what she called the evaluation store, which um, if he's right, this has a really good chance of completely transforming um, the landscape of production ML. And I believe this is the first time he talked about it. So it's worth checking out. It was really good. So thanks for giving a shout out to that, by the way. So. Definitely added that to my to my list. And I'll be sure to, to spam that out to the, the newsletter as well. I'm looking forward to digging into this. Cool. So, uh, Full stack deep learning, what is this? Can you uh, give us a little bit more detail on this? Yeah, so Josh um, and uh, a few other researchers in the area uh, are teaching a class. It was more of like a kind of a, a crash course boot camp thing uh, at Berkeley. Um, and so they talked about um, just all the different aspects of production machine learning and uh, deep learning. And now they actually have a follow-on course going on right now, actually, at Berkeley. Um, I think it's a full semester course now. So, But pretty much what it is, is a, is a deep dive into all the different facets you need to consider when you're trying to do production machine learning. Um, and it's, I think it's the best resource out there right now. Well, it's one of the only resources out there right now. So, <laughs> but. Yeah, but the nice thing is that, um, uh, so they have a course website that has like last year's videos. It's pretty comprehensive. They have a bunch of guest speakers that talk through like different use cases, um, but also too. So they have like a live Berkeley one going on. That one's closed and it was like Berkeley extension, but they have an online one um, where it's uh, a bunch of us are doing like the course where you get project feedback and all that. But, you know, if you're not doing that, uh, they will post videos for free and also the labs and also the PowerPoint slides. And they'll really go through like different areas like deployment, like evaluation, um, what is the structure of like a, a data science machine learning team? Um, you know, it really, like if I had to make a list of like the five resources of all time, like for any anyone who is like considering to be like a practicing professional um, in uh, data science, machine learning, analytics, whatever, um, that would be hands down like the resource I would recommend. Um, so it's full stack deep learning. If you uh, just Google the term, you'll be able to find it. Um, and I think the like asynchronous um, like online course where they post the videos is starting March 1st, March 1st. Right on, man. That's uh, really, really awesome. Definitely going to be digging into that. Thank you very much. Next up, we got the one and only Greg Kokio. All right. So um, I'm constantly thinking about uh, how to do things a little bit faster at work. And it takes a group of 20 
uh, a long time to produce paper out because you have to go to your data, you have to make a case for it. And um, one of the best way at Amazon uh, to convince folks with an idea is not only to write a quick paper about your vision, but also to um, come up with a, I guess, scrappy solution. And one of the things I'm trying to build right now is a chatbot. So I wanted to see if anybody had a, I'm in the compliance industry and uh, chatbots to me will be quick for people in compliance who are trying to find quick answers about their data, the performance of their products. And uh, so they don't have to go to a centralized BI team for answers that would take, you know, month of prioritization. And I feel like a chatbot can uh, give me answers a little bit fast. And I don't know if anyone is, um, has built anything like that before. I just want to scrap a solution where maybe I have 20 to 50 questions on a Excel sheet that I can link to this chatbot and answer questions to showcase what this thing can do. Um, but my gold star is um, having something that can even fetch links that can take you to the direct answer or produce like a PDF. Um, anybody has done anything with chatbots, especially with AWS chatbots, uh, built it before, uh, could guide me on how to quick, quickly put something together. Anybody's got any tips, definitely go for it. Um, you know, one of the first Alexa apps back in the day, and it's still running. Um, I would say it's gotten a lot easier since then. So I don't know if it, what, you've, what you've tried, have you, what, what have you tried so far or thought of? So I've read, I've read uh, things about the chat. So Alexa, to me, um, when I hear Alexa, I hear kind of voice activated, but it's more like a text uh, activated that I'm looking for. So I didn't think Alexa was appropriate because at some point, if you're in the office, I can see where a voice activated uh, tool can be annoying to somebody, you know, to your neighbor. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I looked into AWS chatbot. It's just that it's, it's gibberish in, it, to me so far. Uh, just we need to, to to skip corners to see if anybody has touched on it, played with it before, and, and tell me how to, you know, kind of put something very scrappy together. Uh, maybe if we can answer 10 questions, I'm happy with that because that can help me make a case uh, uh, for the business to, to go forward with it, with a tool like that. It's just that something that we don't think about in compliance because uh, most people, they're not, you know, um, they're not versed in data, right? In analytics, but when it comes to legal paperwork, uh, putting things together, um, they're good at this. Lots of wordings, lots of words. But when it comes to, oh, okay, um, let's go get the numbers. Uh, then it takes you know a while for the BI team to put these things together for us. And I feel like um, I'm trying to reduce that that time, that churn. Um, so that was my purpose for this. I've got a, a link here to a notebook that's a generative chatbot that might be helpful to you. And then there's another one here called Deep Pavlov. Uh, and it's a uh, pattern matching chatbot with the Deep Pavlov framework, which is a uh, open source conversational AI framework. So I'll go ahead and I'll add that link right there as well. In the meantime, if anybody has direct experience working on this stuff, I know Greg would definitely appreciate that. Um, and here's another notebook for a tutorial on uh, how to create a chat bot. So I'm hoping these might be helpful. Uh, so this, this last one is uh, from Matthew Inkowich. If you just type into Google, everybody listening at home, Matthew Inkowich, 
chatbot tutorial. Uh, it's pretty comprehensive and it uh, looks like it might be helpful. Should get you started in the right direction. That'd be great. Thank you. Yeah. If anybody else has. I, wanted, I just yeah. wanted to ask Greg, Greg, um, how sophisticated do you want the chatbot? Just very simple. Ask questions. Ask me, you know, say if you think about right now, a list of 10 to 20 questions with their answers, you know, showcase that the chatbot can give you that answer quite fast. That would give you, uh, you know, somebody who's not thinking about this, the, the, I just want to spark an idea with my, my uh, teammates that th these informations, uh, we can get them faster if we uh, put some money together to build technology around it and not rely, have to rely on a centralized BI team to uh, query the, the, the solution for us, uh, which could take a, a month. Depends on um, how much they have in the backlog because they do have a lot of you know, other uh, customers to respond to. So I put uh, in the chat uh, a good friend of mine in Indonesia. He has a chat bot to, that where you that that may be a tool. I'm sorry, he has a chat bot in his landing page that answers questions about him. And from the way you're describing it, that might be a good starting point to look at and consider among these other things that were shared with you. Also, that's right. That's right. I know Louis. Yes. Thank you, Tom. Craig, I just have a quick uh, comment on that because what you're talking about now is specifically something that I would like to implement on my in my concept. Uh, and as an example, technically what it means is just that as an auditor, I could type in uh, how can I verify blah, 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 and et cetera. Now, what I'd like the machine learning or how it's gathering is basically to go into all the data and pick out, okay, where to look, what to look for, okay, what's historical information, and then summarize that and bring back the answer either, as you said, PDF format or LinkedIn. The tool that I've developed now is actually generating, quote-unquote, automatically a audit work program for the auditor. So you go through a set of questions, you raise uh, and vary, and, um, a rank or risk assess, and based on the results, it then you just basically generate and you have your work program. Now, the work programs will then initially be empty, okay? It's, I'm providing them with what to do, how to do, what information to ask for, uh, et cetera, et cetera, to the auditee. But in time, when you're actually working on it, you will start adding where you got the information, what information you got, what regulations did you use, et cetera, et cetera, to build up your case as to a finding. Now, the idea then, of course, is when you come back, it's then imports all of this, upstates everything, and again, feeds back in. And this particular issue that you're raising now is clearly something that I think has a huge potential, uh, especially if I'm sitting on an audit and I'm by myself and I'm trying to figure out what to do. I can just ask, and then technically the system will generate some suggestions of what to do, how to do. It won't do the job for me, but at least it will make my life a lot easier. Simplify, yeah. just like you want to simplify. I'm a lazy guy. That's why things get invented. That's my theory. <laughs> exactly. And my laziness takes me here to see if I could cut some corners about, you know, somebody who might have worked on, you know, Amazon tools before and, and know how to put this together so I don't have to read so many papers and things like that. Like so, I've always said is that yeah. if it wasn't for laziness, they wouldn't have invented the wheel. 
<laughs> exactly. So I, I know um, I, I'm pretty happy about QuickSight because recently they released something called QuickSight Q, where you can build a dashboard and then you can use natural language to ask questions about mm. the data. Uh, tell me where I can see from this period that, you know, things were went wrong and why and things like that. Then it translates that to a response within the dashboard. So which is something a lot of business folks are excited about. But um you know, right. not everything needs a quick site. Yes, go ahead, Jeff. At Amazon, I mean, do they give you um, the ability to use the AWS tools? Um, or it, it depends how expensive. So uh, the dep my department might not have enough money to afford, uh, right? So um, we all have a budget. So um, if we can build the tool internally with our tech teams that are software engineers, it's probably better than just using AWS. It depends. Uh, some solutions are good with AWS too. Because AWS is just like a third-party uh, company for us, um, we we have to, you know, it's it's kind of like a utility bill, like like anything else. So we have to budget for it. And when new ideas come in, you might not necessarily have budgeted for that, and uh, you have to figure out the scrappy way, scrappiest way of 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 you know doing it. And if AWS is the answer, we we go with it. So, um, but they're always open for us to to leverage. Okay, no, that's that's good insight. Do you guys? I mean. Would the interface be something like Chime or Slack or like what would the interface be to, to this chatbot? I would say something like this. Yeah, uh, something like uh, Slack or something. Um, now, here's the advantage. I, I'm glad you asked. Because we now have Slack, um, AWS is embeddable into Slack nowadays. And I've seen people uh, doing it too. So that could be another avenue where I could create a, like a Slack channel for my team, for my group and then uh, figure out a way to um, have AWS chatbot uh, speak to it. So that could be another avenue too. It's just the how that I'm I fine with. This. I have, I'm in my AWS console right now, just actually looking at this and they have, so AWS chatbot for uh, AWS that you can configure it for Chime or Slack. And so um, uh, if you have Slack, that might be the first place to look on. So we kind of did this back in the day at one company I was at, we were building a Slack commands to get um, uh, reports and queries. So, because um, we're dwarves, yes. Um, <laughs> I was fine too, Mickey. Cool. Yes. Once you have a way of like configuring, I, I suppose what you need to do is like figure out. Okay, so like this phrase is going to match with this query, right? Against the database. And after that, it's I'm sure it's improved a lot since then. I'd be curious if, if you try out QuickSight uh, Q. I'm very curious your feedback on that. So. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So the dashboards we have, there are so many um, people who uh, rely on it, or I just have to build a case to, to leverage QuickSight Q. It's, it's launched through AWS, but our group haven't, haven't leveraged it yet. Um, I've, I've, I've used uh, some sort of uh, uh, natural language before through Power BI, um, and uh, it's been there for, for at least, you know, two years now. And... Uh, you know, I liked it. So I know the power uh, uh, it has. And um, I am yet to make a case for uh, changing our current dashboards uh, through QuickSight yet. But I know QuickSight Q is something that would be very useful for um, our, our business partners as well. Right on. I was going to say like the most scrappy chatbot I can think of would be like a fuzzy string matching and just have tuples, <laughs> like commonly asked questions. And yeah, that's just because, you know, Right. Thank you, team. At the startup incubator, I can get you some AWS credits. Startup incubator. <laughs> I might know someone. Sounds good, Mikiko. I'm going to have to hit you up soon. All right, guys. Well, let's go ahead and let's call this one.
a day. Thank you so much for hanging out, guys. Be sure to check out the interview I did uh, release today. It was with Curtis Pikes, who is here. I think he dropped off, uh, but it was an excellent interview. He's got a very interesting backstory. So definitely check that interview out. Um, Later on this month, I think it might even be in two weeks, I've got Greg's episode releasing. So keep an eye out for that one. Uh, So excited for that, guys. So take care. Have a good night. Remember, you got one life on this planet. Why not try to do something big, y'all? Peace.